Okay, pasa, mufasa, bom dia, buongiorno, salam aleikum, and shalom. What's up, everybody? Happy Friday. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Today on the podcast, I'm honored to host Sherry Race, CEO of Enthea. Enthea is a licensed third-party administrator of health insurance focused on psychedelic-assisted therapy as a workplace benefit. And they're on a mission to provide access to safe and affordable psychedelic-assisted therapy starting with ketamine therapy and hopefully continuing across the globe and encompassing many other options in the near future. This podcast is brought to you by MicroBoost. That's M-Y-C-R-O-B-O-O-S-T. MicroBoost. Functional mushrooms. You hear that? Those are MicroBoost soft gel capsules. I've got turkey tail, chaga, and reishi immunity blend in my left hand. And I've got the lion's mane cordyceps formula in my right hand. This podcast is also brought to you by Healing Herbals, one of the nation's premier providers of pure kana extract. You might have heard of kana recently. It's an empathogen, a heart opener, derived from a native South African shrub with a rich lineage and history of use in that region. I've been personally using it myself. In fact, fact, I'm going to take a little bit right now. It's a fully legal supplement and a highly effective one, perfect to sub in for alcohol, for social occasions, and also, of course, to endear you to the in-laws during this holiday season. Check out www.healingherbals.store and please, please rate and review the Mycopreneur podcast wherever you're listening. All right, without further ado, let's get the show on the road. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, what's up everybody? Welcome, Sherry Race, CEO of Enthia. How's everything going today, Sherry? Everything is wonderful. I'm speaking to you from Lisbon, Portugal, so I'm happy about the weather. Lovely. I was in Lisbon last month. It's one of my favorite cities. I totally understand the appeal. And Porto is quite nice also, a little bit north of that one. So Let's jump straight to the point here and let's figure out what is the overarching goal of what you're doing with Enthia. We've all seen Enthia floating around headlines. We know that you're at the vanguard of working to address the gap in employer-provided mental health care by offering psychedelic-assisted therapies as a third-party provider. But what are you trying to accomplish with your team at Enthia? Yeah, great question. So, Uh, Enthia really serves as, I think, a transformative force in the mental health benefit space. We partner with employers to offer psychedelic therapy, initially focusing on ketamine therapy as an employee benefit. And this approach fills a really crucial gap left by major insurance carriers who do not cover these therapies. Um, thereby kind of addressing a significant unmet need in the market. Um, Really, we're trying to make psychedelic therapy uh, affordable, accessible, and do that in a way that's safe. So safely affordable and accessible. And uh, ultimately, by working with employers, we'll enhance employee well-being, lead to increased productivity, reduce absenteeism, decrease medical spend, decrease disability claims costs. But um, hopefully uh, have a domino effect so more people learn about and have access to psychedelic therapy. Right on. Okay, very succinct. I appreciate that. So obviously, you've successfully rolled out ketamine therapy as a workplace benefit with the inimitable and very socially progressive Dr. Bronner's Soap Company, which hopefully is going to serve as a template for future success stories with other companies who will follow suit. Can you describe some of the process behind this successful benefit implementation from concept to execution with Dr. Bronner's? Yes. So um, I'll start off with kind of the the outcomes and then I'll explain the whole execution. Um, Essentially, we collaborated with Dr. Bronner's to do a proof of concept or a pilot. It's the first company in the world to offer ketamine therapy as an employee benefit. Um, and what that's yielded is actually quite remarkable. So what we saw uh, at one year follow-up on the patients that went through a complete round of ketamine therapy was an 87% reduction in PTSD symptoms, a 65% reduction in depression symptoms, and a 67% reduction in anxiety symptoms. These results underscore the effectiveness of psychedelic therapy or ketamine therapy specifically, especially when compared to traditional approaches. 
Um, I think the partnership with Dr. Bronner's not only validated Anthea's mission, uh, but also contributed to valuable insights to the growing body of evidence supporting the efficacy of psychedelic treatments. And as to like how that happened and how it came about, um, really we approached Dr. Bronner's seemed kind of like the perfect first customer and proof of concept. Uh, David Bronner and the entire mission of Dr. Bronner's is very much in line with supporting advocacy around psychedelic therapy. So it did seem like a good first customer. They also have a great um, employee pool size because it would have been hard to do a proof of concept with you know 10,000 employees and probably uh, less significant, not, not meaningful, but would have been less significant to do it with an employee pool of five employees. Dr. Runners had an employee pool of over 300 employees. So that was good. And what it meant uh, to, to launch this as a pilot, it meant that we as Anthea had to develop medical policies, standards of care, a provider network, a way for providers to get reimbursed, a way for the Dr. Bronner's employees to approach a provider, all of the things that um, you would need if you, for example, think about if you need to go to the dentist through your dental insurance, you need to have place to find out which dentists are in network, how to access them, how much you pay out of pocket. The dentist needs to know how to get reimbursed. So kind of all of those things. So Dr. Bronner's is obviously unabashedly pro-psychedelic medicine. We all know and love David Bronner. And it was wonderful to see him at Psychedelic Science interacting with Rick Perry, who is, as an example, is an individual very much on the other side of the political aisle. You wouldn't think of former Governor Rick Perry as being someone who is socially progressive by any stretch. And I'm curious, your work with Dr. Bronner's, right, that does seem like the perfect proof of concept for many reasons. But what are those conversations like when you approach other companies who may be on the other side of the ideological divide and who maybe still carry some stigma around psychedelics? Yeah. So I think not to oversimplify the issue, but when we are talking to other potential customers, we sort of have two categories of, of customers. And again, it's not like a black and white labeling, um, but there are some customers where there is an in-house evangelist who either has tried psychedelic therapy or is interested in psychedelic therapy and believes in it. Maybe they haven't tried it or they have a family member or a friend that's tried it. And so, when that's the case, when there's this in-house evangelist, it's a very different conversation because we already have someone who knows and believes in the power of psychedelic therapy. There are other employers that we are talking to, probably many more like this. It's always great to have the evangelist, but there are many more <laughs> employers sort of changing and shifting, actually, uh, where we're talking to an HR team, especially with larger companies. And nobody has had any experience or exposure to psychedelic therapy. In that case, the conversation, like you expected, might start off with, you know, a little bit of hesitation or perhaps lack of education on the potential of these medicines. However, there's a lot of interest and curiosity because these employers are really um, experiencing a lot of pain points, as we all are, because there's a mental health crisis going on. But from an employer perspective, they're seeing it in their retention rates, they're seeing it in disability claims, they're seeing it in missed days of work from their employees, they're seeing it in the medical spend that they have, they're seeing it in absenteeism, I think I mentioned that one. So with with those employers that don't know about the benefits of psychedelic therapy, they do know about the effects of the mental health crisis, and they do know that their existing offerings aren't really working or not being utilized. And so we can come to them from that perspective and then share all of this data on the benefits of psychedelic therapy and overcome that hesitancy. Yeah, data is often politically agnostic, right? You can lead with data, and even if somebody doesn't understand what psychedelic medicine is, they should be able to understand that 87% of employees felt better after their year-long ketamine treatment therapy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, okay, the psychedelic renaissance, as many people refer to it, has obviously garnered increasing and significant attention in the last half decade specifically 
And it seems to have perhaps reached a fever pitch this summer at Psychedelic Science in Denver. 14,000 people, you know, a huge auditorium filled with people from everything from Navy SEAL, you know, ex-Marines to uh, uh, professional athletes to cultural icons, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems that many people in the psychedelic space right now are looking to MAPS's impending FDA approval of MDMA for PTSD and depression to be the watershed moment that really starts to attract a lot more funding to the psychedelic space, a lot more, let's say, traditional pharma companies and so on and so forth to really get on board. And I'm curious, how do you see this potential FDA approval of MDMA for therapeutic use impacting the willingness of more companies to offer psychedelic assisted therapies for their employees? Well, I think you touched on a lot of it. Um, the FDA approval of MDMA will definitely shift the employer's perspective on including this as an employee benefit. Uh, it will validate the industry as a whole. It'll make this a more attractive option to employers. Um, but I think you know, even more than that, not, not to kind of like detract from your question, even right now with ketamine therapy as a workplace benefit, like Dr. Bronner's was the first company to do this. We now have uh, 12 customers at Anthean. We have almost 100 in the pipeline. This shift that we're seeing as we talk to customers day in and day out, like we're seeing it live. We started conversations at the beginning of the year with customers where people were like, are you talking about that drug from when I was in college? Like, are you talking about special K? Like, are you talking about that party thing? And now as we're talking to employers, they're like, oh no, like we've seen this thing on Goop or we've seen this thing on CNN or we've seen how to change your mind on Netflix. So there's definitely a shift even pre FDA approval and more and more people are having access to ketamine therapy and then talking about psychedelics as a whole. And of course, with the approval of MDMA, that'll just be augmented even further. I don't think, and not to sound negative, that um, approval by FDA will mean that all of a sudden all insurance carriers will cover this and all employers will be able to offer this to their employees. Because even with ketamine, we're seeing that ketamine is FDA approved, but traditional insurance carriers, like it's been approved for a while and traditional insurance carriers aren't covering it. And so I think we'll see the same thing with MDMA, like we'll be really excited about the FDA approval. And also it might take longer for larger insurance carriers to, to offer coverage. So in case people may be unfamiliar with the purported benefits of psychedelic therapy, can you briefly outline some of the goals of what you're hoping to achieve by enabling access to psychedelic assisted therapies with Enthea? Yeah, definitely. So um, first of all, when we say psychedelics, we could be referring to a lot of different substances, mind altering substances. Um, but the ones that we are focused on mainly at the moment, we meaning like what's closest to FDA approval, we have ketamine, which is a psychedelic-like substance that's already FDA approved and available nationwide, which is an anesthetic, a dissociative anesthetic. We have psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. We have MDMA, which is um, the pure form of what's known as molly or ecstasy. And um, what the benefits are is unlike traditional approaches to mental health conditions like antidepressants and talk therapy, psychedelic assisted therapy gets to the root cause of one's mental health issue. This is very helpful. We've seen for anxiety, depression, PTSD, addiction, eating disorders, probably other things as well. Um, but because of because of the the disassociative experience or the hallucinative experience that you get the, this kind of mind altered state that you have um, when you're doing psychedelic assisted therapy, your brain, uh, it increases in neuroplasticity and you are allowed to form sort of new connections in your brain, sort of like a reset. And after about one to four sessions, sometimes up to six sessions with ketamine therapy, what we see in clinical trials is anywhere between 65 to 85% of participants in trials walk away at 12 month follow-up, no longer presenting the conditions of their initial diagnosis. So not to get too technical, but to give an example, 
This means that after doing a complete round of psilocybin assisted therapy, so one to three sessions, a 12 month follow up, the people who originally had treatment resistant depression, meaning they've had depression for years and one to three other medications have failed them. People who had treatment resistant depression, they do the psilocybin assisted therapy, they complete the therapy and at one year follow up, anywhere between 65 and 80% of them no longer have treatment resistant depression. They are off their SSRIs. They're no longer doing talk therapy. They are probably doing things to take care of themselves like meditate or, you know, whatever their practices are, breath work, but they are essentially quote unquote cured, which sounds too good to be true. But um, that really is what we're seeing with the clinical trials, like extremely positive outcomes, significant outcomes of people at 12 month follow up, no longer, um, no longer presenting the conditions of their diagnosis. Um, I'll just give one more example, which I think is um, very profound with smoking cessation and psilocybin assisted therapy, clinical trials have shown close to 80% of people that go through psilocybin therapy no longer smoke after a year. Um, that's better than anything else we've seen to help with smoking. And so, yeah, that, that's kind of like a summary of the benefits, but I'm really not doing it justice because I'm trying to condense years of clinical data. <laughs> Well, thank you for doing that. So one of the perspectives I've heard about why smoking cessation is a good data point is because it's binary. It's either you quit smoking or you don't quit smoking, right? Can you briefly outline your background personally and how you got into this work? Oh, gosh. Yes, I can. <laughs> um, so my background has been focused actually largely on poverty reduction. Uh, I spent 10 years working on poverty reduction programs, consulting to the UN and the World Bank. I decided to be in the field uh, on the ground for those 10 years. So I ended up helping design and implement countries uh, at the national, uh, helping design and implement programs at the national level in 37 countries, um, all with the goal of reducing poverty. So there was different initiatives, uh, holistic approaches to reducing poverty. And I, um, after doing that for a decade, saw firsthand the effects of intergenerational poverty and trauma on community. I also saw that you can't fully address poverty without addressing mental health. And I saw that through the data, like speaking to the importance of data, I was seeing it with my eyes, but I also had to do impact assessments and outcome reports and see, okay, well, we gave people access to clean water and basic healthcare and education. We gave them money. We gave them, um, you know, help them get jobs. And, you know, maybe 60% of people in this pilot area came out of poverty, but strangely, 40% didn't or 50% didn't. And that data really led me to ask a question, like, what's the one thing we're not addressing? And it was, of course, mental health. That led me down a rabbit hole of looking to what can we do to address mental health. And initially, I began that search, um, thinking about what can we do in resource-constrained environments, because that's what I was working in. I assumed that I would find what people are doing in resource-rich environments and find a way to bootleg it and do it in a like more scrappy way in, in other countries. Um, but it was quite surprised to see that what we're doing even in developed countries to treat mental health isn't really working and the data shows that. Anyway, I then stumbled upon what was happening in the psychedelic space, all of the data there. There's a trend here with data. Um, I People come to the psychedelic space for different reasons. Um, some A lot of people have personal experiences that bring them to this space. Um, but for me, it was really the data. I was sitting in Southern Africa on my laptop and reading these clinical trials outcomes and was like, what? They're doing what? There's this many people getting cured from PTSD? Like, how is this happening? It sounds too good to be true. And eventually, um, I, I left my work. And uh, uh, there's a lot of in-between. I, I got trained as a psychedelic therapist through CIAS and MAPS training. I helped start a nonprofit called the Boston Psychedelic Research Group. I started consulting to different psychedelic companies. And eventually, the question I was trying to answer is, you know, how do we get people to access this at scale? And in the U.S., that is through employee benefits. Lovely. I love humanizing a CEO of a third-party insurance provider. So thank you for that.
quick backstory. <laughs> and also, I suppose this makes sense why this would tie into part of the mission statement of Anthea, which has to do with removing health equity obstacles that impede people from receiving impactful mental health services. What are some of these health equity obstacles that are currently impeding people from receiving mental health care services? Oof. Um, do you, how much time do we have? Can we talk all day? <laughs> wow. That is a loaded question. And um, if you don't mind, I, I know that India focuses on, on things in the U.S., but I would like to take a minute to to talk about things globally for a second. Please, I almost asked you that question first. Yes, let's go global. Thanks, because I don't often get to, get to talk about that. So um, globally, we have about over a billion people or almost a billion, depending on who you ask, let's say a billion people world, worldwide suffering from a diagnosable mental health condition. 82% of those people live in low to middle income countries. Um, depression alone, is the leading cause of disability worldwide. Sorry that I'm gonna spew a lot, going back to our trend of data, a lot of statistics to you, but um, this is like what really keeps me up at night. Um, suicide, uh, often like a devastating consequence of untreated or inadequately treated mental health conditions um, results in 800,000 deaths annually. Um, COVID has exasperated all of this. Depression and anxiety has increased 25 to 27% globally since the pandemic. Um, but in terms of the, the equity issues, um, there are pervasive issues of stigma, discrimination, human rights abuses targeted at individuals with mental health conditions. Um, this is even like we see this maybe even home, depending on where home is, but I'm assuming a lot of the listeners live in North America, but this is even more commonplace worldwide. Um, suicide actually is a criminal act in 20 countries. Um, that's just to speak to like the stigma of mental health conditions. Um, and to speak a little bit more about the inequity between like developed and, and less developed countries in high income countries, 70% uh, of people with psychosis receive treatment. So that's already a problem. Like we should be at you know, imagine I said like 70% of people with cancer got treatment. We'd be like, why? It should be higher. Um, but in, in high-income countries, 70% of people with psychosis receive treatment. In low-income countries, it's only 12%. So, uh, yeah, you can do the math. But most people um, suffering from a mental health condition in low-income countries are not receiving treatment. And then if you... Uh, let's look at, sorry, with all the statistics, I'll stop, but you like kind of have me on a thing I'm very passionate about. Um, let's just look at depression. In high-income countries, 23% of people with depression are receiving good care for the depression. We can argue on what good means, but let's just say receiving care, 23%. Um, so again, huge problem. That means 77% of people with depression in high-income countries are not receiving treatment. If you go to low-income countries, only 3% of people with depression are receiving care. Um, so we definitely have a huge gap. I could go on all day with various statistics and how um, how the effects of like intergenerational poverty, uh, war, conflict. Like if you look at um, PTSD rates, for example, in like South Sudan, you have 50% of that country with PTSD could look at something similar to Rwanda, about 30% of the population has PTSD because of the conflict. So there are a lot of issues, globally speaking. And then if you want to um, bring it back home and focus on the micro, um, aside, there's stigma is an issue, cultural taboos, and then there's access to trained um, therapists. And if you look at a map, let's in the US, you can find maps on this and I can share a link to, for you to share when you share this podcast, but um, there are complete dead zones, like zip codes all over the U.S. where you can't find a mental health therapist within, I don't know how many miles it is, but within like a, you know, drivable distance, like you would have to drive hours to go see a, 
therapist, which is absolutely, um, I don't want to say, yeah, it's just really unfortunate. I, I mean, I'm comparing it to places where there's like no therapist in the whole country, but um, it's really unfortunate that that's the case. Um, and then you have the fact that the average wait time for a behavioral health therapist is three months. Um, I'm forgetting the exact percentage, but um, a large percentage of therapists don't take insurance. Uh, that's a whole issue. So people have to pay out of pocket um, to find care. Um, and then you have the issue of, you know, we already have this shortage of therapists, but then if you are a minority, a person of color or somebody from the LGBTQIA plus community, it's even harder because you might want to talk to someone who you can relate to or identify with. And unfortunately, finding a therapist who's a similar minority is even harder. Um, have I talked too much? <laughs> so, Please continue. Sorry. Yeah, we're going to continue this. Um, these are like putting psychedelics aside, just like access to care that isn't even, I shouldn't say it's not good care because I'm not trying to, um, insult the therapist in any way, but from a data perspective, some of these traditional approaches like don't work well, but even access to this basic level of care is not almost non-existent unless you have a lot of money and you can get to the front of the line. And so... Yeah, th those are a lot of issues we have. Um, I was on a call the week before last with, um, and hopefully he's not listening to this, with <laughs> with um, a very, very, I'll just use word, vague terms, a very affluent person from a Western developed country, um, probably on like lists of, Forbes is whatever, whatever, top something, or has been on one of those those lists in one of the years. And, you know, I'm thinking this person's like has access to so much money, is super educated, like, you know, doesn't have a lot of these, has a lot of privileges, right? And has never done therapy because he said like, no, that would be weird for him. Like he has a stigma in his mind. He recognized it as a stigma, but he's like, I couldn't, I couldn't, I wouldn't feel comfortable going to a therapist. So aside from access issues, from that standpoint, there is still this like deep rooted stigma that I think we don't talk enough about. I'm glad we're talking about it now because now you got me on something I'm passionate about. I might not understand a lot about how the insurance network and providers work, but I have traveled extensively. I grew up hosting exchange students from all over the world, including many countries and what some would call the global South, places like Ghana, Venezuela, many former Soviet Union. And that certainly informed my macro perspectives of how I look at the world at a young age. And one of my criticisms of the psychedelic renaissance, as many people refer to it, is how focused it is on the global north, right? All the clinical trials are happening in the United States, in Europe, some in Israel, maybe Australia. But I often think about what about over in India and Bangladesh and Congo and sub-Saharan Africa? And as someone who's lived over there and worked with the World Bank, et cetera, I'm sure that there's a lot of familiar overlap here with what I'm talking about. But one of the valid criticisms I've heard about clinical trials with psychedelics is that the populations who are often participating in them can be summed up with the acronym WEIRD, white, educated, from an industrialized country, rich, and democratic. And how does this self-selecting population translate over into a broader demographic when we start thinking about bridging the mental health services gap and health equity obstacles globally. So I'd be curious, how does the work with Anthea that you're doing here start to translate into your broader goal of having a more equitable mental health services system globally? Wow. Um, <laughs> great question. Uh, also, um, really good to hear about our similarities kind of like in, in backgrounds and, and interest in places we've been to, I have been to some of those countries as well. Um, so I'll start off with, you asked me like about the origins of Anthea. And one detail I kind of skipped over was for me, I had, I was very comfortable and fulfilled and happy in my work, uh, in my international development work. And then I stumbled upon what was happening in the psychedelic space. And I pitched uh, psychedelic therapy to the UN, like doing a pilot in Southern Africa. And let's say I was premature with that pitch in 2018. 
And um, I, I think I waited until I got a promotion to pitch it again and was again rejected. Um, but the idea was really to start with um, a pilot, like what I'm doing with Anthea, but start with something like that in a developing country, because I also agree, like, why is everything weird? Uh, thanks for the acronym. Why is everything so weird? Um, or so weird focused. And uh, I hit a lot of walls. And one of my mentors told me, Sherry, this is a great idea. The data is very convincing. But if they're not doing it in the Western world, it's going to be really hard to pitch it, at least to a large organization like the UN. Uh, maybe like a smaller grassroots organization, you could work something out or if you went directly directly to the Ministry of Health in a certain country. But through a large, such a large organization, there's a lot of red tape. Not to speak badly about the UN, very much love them, might work with them again someday. <laughs> um, when he said that to me, I wholeheartedly disagreed um, that it shouldn't have to happen in the US first. And yet I thought that that was too big of a battle for me to fight. So Anthea was created. Here we are trying to create a domino effect um, with access in the US first. I'm not even doing it in my own country. I'm from Canada. Um, but to, to speak to your question, I uh, quite frankly don't think um, I would like to hope that I want to like be be realistic with expectations. I would like to hope that what Anthea is doing can create ripple effects, not just in the US, but in the world. Like all of the data that we collect on patient outcomes, I want us to be able to share it. I want other countries and ministries and organizations to see um, the, the positive outcomes from psychedelic therapy and also I'm hoping through Anthea, we also have a nonprofit, which we're going to use for a patient access fund. So we're going to help people from underserved communities, probably yes, from the US to start, get access to these medicines. But that can also be a model that other countries can use of like, how do you do this when, when resources are tight, right? Not through an employer. Um, but I do hope that the data, see, going back to that, will create a ripple effect and people will see the data and then um, people will want to implement this beyond the U.S. It is starting here for sure. It's not just the U.S., but um, like developed countries. But I do hope that there will be a ripple effect. And I also, not to sound too, I'm usually very realistic, but to, to throw in some optimism, um, there is something uh, magical that happens, <laughs> definitely, with psychedelic therapy where... Um, and this is like he also documented it as a mystical experience, as a spiritual experience that you feel very connected to the world, to nature, to others. And I think that magical element may help inspire, hopefully, I'm hoping other people in positions of power, leaders, just people in general to kind of like, let's connect and build community and get this out there to as many people as we can. Like, I'm hoping that that's kind of like this third wave of the psychedelic renaissance is like, let's, let's share this with the world. That might be very optimistic. Yeah. I love to sprinkle in a good dose of optimism there because we need all the optimism we can get these days, right? It's a pretty challenging times for a lot of reasons, especially on the cultural landscape globally right now. There's a lot of different narratives butting heads and we're just getting bombarded all the time by so many different perspectives uh, like never before. So uh, let's let's dive into a little bit talking about working with these large global governance bodies. You've got me very interested talking about the World Bank and the UN. I had Amanda Fielding on the podcast. I was fortunate to interview her in person and she's been working with the United Nations slash going to their events for 40 years or something like that now. And she kind of level-headedly told me that they're very stubborn, that you can present all of the data and the information and they have a way they like doing things. Now, you could argue that that's starting to change, that, you know, the glo global politics and the people in those rooms 
are very different now than perhaps they were 40 years ago or so. Is that something that you've noticed that at these large global organizations that perhaps there's a, a shifting tide with younger, fresher perspectives, maybe more diverse, more globalized presences in the room that actually start to shift the conversation in favor where we can have optimism that maybe psychedelics, psychedelic assisted therapies are taken seriously and are not just eschewed as being crazy hippie speak? 100%. Um, so I uh, personally had the great uh, luck and fortune to speak at a few events at the UN General Assembly uh, this week, uh, this week, sorry, this year in, in New York. Um, that's like the UN's biggest thing that they put together. Um, and also got to speak at Davos, like put together by the World Economic Forum earlier this year. The fact that, I mean, I'm no one in the grand scheme of all of these things, but the fact that even they was, I was asked to speak at these, at this, at these audiences about psychedelic therapy, like I kind of had to pinch myself. Um, and last year at Davos, at the World Economic Forum, there was a whole house of psychedelics. So this year there was just different talks um, that happened at various events and houses, but um, there was a, an entire for people who haven't been to Davos, um, it's kind of set up where like, think think of college campuses where you have like a building for engineering and a building for, I don't know, medicine or whatever. You kind of have that in Davos. You have like different houses for each thing. And the fact that there was a house of psychedelics to me is like unreal and incredible. And there was a whole list of amazing speakers. Um, so there's, yes, definitely a shift. Um, I also, I forget forgive me for forgetting the name of this publication, but there's a, a publication that goes to all kind of like humanitarian and aid workers, like workers, employees of the UN, it's digital and in print. And they also asked me to write this year, like a piece on specifically on the potential of psychedelic therapy for aid workers and for refugees. And so, um, yeah, I think things are changing. Um, I think going back to the example of when Anthea talks to employers, we kind of have two camps, the people that have heard about it, and then the evangelist. Within the international development community as well, within other countries, within agencies like the UN and the World Bank and the IMF, guess what? Mental health is a very real thing. It doesn't discriminate in some ways. We talked about inequities, but uh, everyone goes through mental health issues. Everyone knows someone that's gone through a mental health issue. And so all of the employees of all of these organizations, chances are one out of every two of them have gone through something, if not all of them. And so they probably have experienced traditional approaches failing them or the ones that they love. And so it's um, only a matter of time, I think, before psych psychedelic therapy to me is already fairly mainstream and is becoming more and more mainstream because people are unfortunately suffering. Absolutely. Well, thanks for indulging me and talking about the more broader global <laughs> issues. I can tell that you're passionate about them and I very much, yes, please continue. Sorry, I jumped up because it would be remiss of me not to um, acknowledge uh, something that I have that has recently come to my attention that I was really excited by. In Kenya at the, I believe the Aga Khan Hospital, they are actually doing ketamine therapy in Nairobi, in Kenya, which I think is like, uh, I mean, I don't know if other, I haven't checked if other hospitals in, in Africa are doing this, but the fact that this is happening in Kenya right now, I think is incredible. Lovely. And speaking of that, we have a mutual friend and colleague, Maria of Tabula Rasa, who I believe is on the board for Enthia, and her and Merrick. We're just in Abu Dhabi, right, in the United Arab Emirates and participated in the first public health conference with the Minister of Health, I believe, of Abu Dhabi, speaking about psychedelics. And that for me was one of those watershed moments because I actually used to live in Riyadh and the concept of having a public discourse about psychedelics in the Swana region was very far from a practicality when I was there in 2013. And obviously that particular region and the kingdom of Saudi Arabia have shifted into a much more open global stance in the last decade and with the transition of power. And I think we're starting to see that in more places. So was that something that you were involved in? And can you speak at all about dialogues ongoing in places beyond the United States? 
I was not involved in what happened in Abu Dhabi. So I, like you, got to watch in amazement from a distance um, and see Marie and Ria do that and was really excited. Um, I uh, am um, Muslim, however, and my, my parents are Muslim as well. And so it's been interesting for me to follow, like even, for example, like Iran's, um, like Ayatollah announced that psychedelic medicines are acceptable in Islam which to me was like very surprising to like make this, you know, announcement that they're acceptable if you're using it to treat a mental health issue. So like for such a important person in the Muslim community to take such a stance, I think, again, going back to like ripple effects, um, I'm really happy to see uh, that, that more and more these are being recognized as like medicines. Totally. I had a great conversation with a friend who's Muslim also about the idea of what it means for something to be haram and how psychedelics fall into that category, which I know just like in the in the US as a sort of analog, if you have major cultural figures and politicians, et cetera, who are advocating for psychedelics, it makes it more palatable for most people, right? Who are looking to someone to kind of decode what is permissible and what's not. So I think that drives at a really fundamental and interesting question about what exactly is a poison and what's a medicine? And, you know, historically, psychedelics are loaded with cultural baggage, especially in the U.S. You think about what happened in the 1960s and with the war on drugs and so on and so forth. A lot of people have understandably been soured on the idea that these could ever be positive transformational catalysts in society. But it's even more so globally. Like if you, you think about other countries where something is just categorically been seen to be illegal, wrong, haram, et cetera. And now we're going through a process of reframing what that actually means and what's permissible. So I just find a lot of nuance and a, a lot of fascination in that topic. And yeah, yeah, just wanted to, to make a note of that really quickly. Yes. Yeah. And for um, a huge, I think I have to make a huge shout out to Brian Murescu if the audience hasn't read the Immortality Key. I highly, highly recommend this book. I don't know if you've read it, but it um, goes uh, it goes to the historical connection between ancient religious practices uh, involving psychedelic substances and the development of spiritual spirituality throughout kind of like civilization. Um, Brian delves into the use of psychoactive plants in ancient religions. He draws kind of links between these practices and the foundations of Western religion. It investigates how substances may have influenced the formation of Christianity. Um, I don't know. It's an excellent book. I highly recommend. He did a very good job of like trying to do something no one's done, which is like, you know, go to these sacred texts and go to like Rome and the Vatican and examine all these things and kind of like see like, you know, what were people using thousands of years ago? Yeah, I actually haven't read it, but I'm familiar with the text and, and that's a, a hard to ignore the plug here. So I'm going to have to go dive into that. But I have been making an effort of reading a lot of war on drugs literature and a lot of psychedelic inclined literature. And I'm fortunate to host a lot of the authors on the podcast. And I realize how much I like having journalists and writers on the podcast because they're typically very clear thinkers. They're people who have thought deeply about a subject. They can elucidate on their points very well. And this bodes well for uh, a, a riveting podcast discourse. Now, one of the criticisms I've heard about the medicalized use of psychedelics, which I'm pretty unabashedly positive in regards to different access points. I personally believe that all of these different models, like a religious use model, decriminalization, medicalized model, insurance provided model, they can all work in tandem. That's kind of where I'm at right now. But there is a fair amount of critique about this idea of a overly corporatized psychedelic medicine ecosystem where you have to pay these exorbitant costs. And if you can't, then you have to go through your insurance provided healthcare. And I'm curious, is that something that Anthea and your broader network of, of stakeholders you're working with are aware of and reacting to this idea that decrim is also important, the, the concept of decriminalization, or are you pretty focused on your work directly with a medicalized route? To be honest, I am. We are pretty focused on our work directly with the medical route. Um, I know people are doing incredible work and working hard on decrim. Um, I personally have my own uh, reservations is too strong of a word, but 
sometimes just concerns of like how that could affect the medical model or affect validity, like if taken to the extreme, I see the benefits of decrim, don't get me wrong. Um, but we have been at Anthea like super focused on legal pathways and, and the medical model, um, kind of really because uh, in truth, a lot of startups don't succeed. And I think that's because they get kind of distracted by the noise. So trying, trying to stay focused is key. Totally. Thanks for answering that one. Now let's bring it back from the global macro narratives to talking about the granular on the day, you know, day-to-day -day grind for Anthea. And I'd be curious to hear about what are you working on right now? Yeah. So um, thanks for asking. It's been a really great year. We started the year Q1 of this year, securing funding for a seed round. Um, we had previously existed with them um, as a nonprofit, then we restructured and we did that entire Bronner's proof of concept actually with no funding. Um, so securing funding this year was like basically critical to, to our growth. Um, and then we spent a lot of time this year building our provider network. So we had an announcement um, this summer about um, nationwide access. What that means is we essentially, because this is a nascent industry, and I'm not going to get too technical, but um, because this is a new industry, unlike, you know, if you have like a surgeon you go to, you know that it's a board certified surgeon because there's a board that does this kind of like credentialing and they have to keep up with licensing and maybe do some like courses or credits every few years to maintain that license. That doesn't exist to date uh, it, or it's not at least um, effective or in operation like a credentialing or certification board nationally. So Anthea had to come up with medical policies and a credentialing process to vet providers. And then we had to bring providers into our network and vet each one. So we started with one at the beginning of the year. We now have over a hundred um, and um, have uh, nationwide access, regardless of where a customer is, their employees will have access to a ketamine therapy provider. So that's been really huge. Um, we also recently announced um, that we will cover psilocybin therapy or introduce psilocybin therapy as a benefit before FDA approval in states where psilocybin is legal in 2024. Um, no other company is doing that. And to date, like no company is offering psilocybin therapy to their employees as a benefit. We already have several companies in Oregon very interested in offering this. So we're just um, fine, finalizing all of the details on our medical policy and standards of care there to make sure uh, we can do it in alignment with our mission, like safely as well. Um, so make sure that's all done correctly. And then honestly, we're focusing a lot on growth. So with the foundation of our standards of care, medical policy, credentialing process and provider network, and then our kind of like pilot and proof of concept and initial data, now we can go to employers and build our customer base and give more access. So the focus in 2024 will be bringing on a hundred customers um, to get more people access. I love having such a clear goal in mind, right? It's uh, that which can be measured, can be improved, and you have to have sort of a benchmark to work towards. So I really appreciate how grounded you are when speaking about the practicalities and the pragmatism of onboarding different insurers or different employers and the general state of the psychedelic industry or ecosystem. Let's finish off this podcast with a healthy dose of optimism. What are you really personally optimistic about with Anthea and with the broader goal of providing psychedelic assisted medicines and therapies to as many people as possible? And I'd love to leave you the last few minutes here to issue any call to action maybe for the audience for how they can support Anthea. You know, an obvious one would be being a, an evangelist or an advocate inside of your company for reception of these services. And what are some other ways that people can support and mobilize to help achieve Anthea's mission? Yeah, I'm very excited about Anthea's growth. Um, in the employer benefit space, uh, there is a very long sales cycle. So uh, the sales cycle is 12 to 18 months. Um, so now in the coming months, I think we'll see the fruits of our labor with more and more customers signing up really every month, which I'm very excited about. Um, two, I'm very excited about the data. Um, a lot of our clinical trials, not to criticize them um, because they're 
the reason like we're almost at FDA approval, have um, smaller sample sizes. And I'm really excited, like through employers offering this as an offering, we'll see at scale what the data looks like and how what patient outcomes look like and how ketamine therapy and hopefully MDMA and psilocybin therapy can improve people's well-being. Um, so very excited about having like more and more data. Uh, three, I'm very excited about, um, I've said this a few times in this conversation, but these kind of like ripple effects. So there's one, this thing of um, FDA approval and more data and more customers, but then there's just this like broader destigmatization that can happen as more and more people seek psychedelic therapy and have access to psychedelic therapy, they're going to tell their friends about it. They're going to tell their loved ones about it. And even if not all of those friends and loved ones get psychedelic therapy, because it's not for everyone and maybe not everyone needs it, their mind might be even just more open to talking about mental health because you really can't help after you've had a psychedelic therapy experience. For most people, it's maybe not true for everyone. You can't help but want to talk about it. And those are the conversations that we need to be having more of like all over the world, right? Um, to just broadly destigmatize mental health. So um, those are things I'm excited about and probably um, selfishly excited about um, what really like inspires me in the work I'm doing on a daily basis is getting these random emails or LinkedIn messages from people being like, oh, like I, I heard this thing that Anthea is doing, or I read this article, or I listened to this podcast. It doesn't even have to be Anthea related. I watched How to Change Your Mind on Netflix, but for some reason they told me about it. And now my wife is getting psychedelic therapy, or now my husband, or now my son. And like, those are the stories that just like, I'm not even looking forward to, I enjoy even in the present moment. And so, yeah. Lovely. Well, thank you so much, Sherry Race of Anthea for joining us on the Mycopreneur podcast. It's been a pleasure. I've learned a lot today and I hope we can continue this conversation someday. Thank you so much. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode and please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, mycopreneur at gmail.com or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Mycopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Mycopreneur Podcast.